this is the Happy Rant Sports Podcast, in which Ted Cluck and Barnabas Piper rant about old sports, new sports, sports books, sports movies, and anything else related to sports that they feel like. Enjoy. Hey, welcome to the Happy Rant Sports Podcast. I'm Ted Cluck, joined as always by Barnabas Piper. And Pipe, we are uh, we are in a post-NFL world, man. Like, how is... How is that for you? Like, I know for me, it always just takes some adjustment. The first Sunday is kind of tough. I feel a little rudderless in the afternoon and, and without purpose. Um, what, what's that like for you? Yeah, it's, you know, if it was nice outside, it would be great to have a free Sunday afternoon because you're like, yeah. oh, it's a whole afternoon to go do anything. But it's, you know, yeah. it's like 40 and rainy here. And, you know, the rest of the country is under nine and a half feet of snow. So, yeah, it's just sort of like, <laughs> oh, I, I, I mean, I guess there are books in the world. Dude, I nearly wept this morning when I looked at like the 10 day forecast on my phone and it was rain for 10 days. Um, Yeah, that's like deeply depressing to me. Yeah, as as wonderful as Middle Tennessee is, and generally speaking, it is a wonderful place to live. It really is. Between between like late December and mid March, it it's like London on steroids. It's just (laughs) the crappiest weather here. Dude, the ground is always wet. Like it's never not muddy. You know, even if yes. even if you're five days out from rain and you go to like play ball in the yard with your kids, you come in like covered in mud. It just stays damp. Yeah, I have to I have to bathe my dog like every four days because she gets disgusting like going on a walk. It's not even yeah. well, let alone if I take her to a dog park and then she's just she's just a pile of filth at that point. Yeah, for sure, dude. Well, one of the things that. Uh, is helping me through the post NFL doldrums is uh, the NBA trade trade deadline pipe and uh, the trade deadline did not disappoint this year. Um, there were a lot of big moves, a lot of interesting people changing teams, and I want to ask you um, which team do you think got got better the quickest, and which team do you think is going to be the most fun to watch as a result of the trade deadline? Well, I mean, I think there's only one team that did anything significant you know, to improve themselves. And that was mm-hmm. Cleveland. I think everybody, well, we talked about the Blake Griffin trade a couple episodes ago. Sure. I th- so, I mean, I think, I think Detroit made a high risk, high reward trade in the East. And I think that will really help them. Dude. And um, it's interesting in that Detroit has been winning, but he has been playing terrible basketball. So it seems like just having Blake Griffin in the city is helping the Pistons, but Blake Griffin himself is not. Yeah. I mean, and, and he, I mean, he fits well with Drummond, and I kind of yeah. undersold Drummond on that trade. I didn't realize at the time that he had actually improved pretty dramatically this year. So he he's not just uh, he's not just another version um, of of what Griffin already had with the Clippers. Yeah. But so I, I think they got better. But I mean, that's the difference between like the nine and the seven seed in the East, which is to sure. say, not a playoff team in the rest of the NBA. Um, Cleveland clearly made the moves to to bump them into back into title contention, you know, so yeah. they were, they were languishing. They would have made the playoffs, but I mean, they might've, they might've gotten knocked out in like the second round. Uh, Dude, I got way- to watch Cleveland for an extended period of time last, last night for the first time since a trade deadline. And boy, did they look good. Younger, yeah. faster, more athletic. I mean, the, the whole thing, man, they look like a different team completely. When it's, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's a, it's a real uh, condemnation of the guys who they got rid of in two ways. One, uh, that they're crappy basketball players mm-hmm. and two, that they're crappy teammates. Like mm-hmm. the fact that they like, Dwayne Wade, Derek Rose, all those guys, I mean, I, I know Channing Fry and those guys had, you know, they had a good reputation, but they they were right. kind of non-entities. I, 
everybody was happy. Like I watched the game on Sunday immediately after the, I think it was Sunday. Um, immediately after the trade deadline, maybe it was Friday. I'm forgetting the day, but, uh, you know, when they, when they just, they ran Boston off the court and, and, and everybody was happy and cheering and they loved each other, Mm. which had not been the case the entire season, which is just, I mean, it's either a really good acting job, right? Or LeBron is bipolar, which is a possibility. That, uh, that is a possibility. Or those other guys who left were just the worst. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's crazy, and and this is what's fun about basketball, like the the subtle little chemistry changes that um, that can happen on a small roster like that. I mean, you don't see it as much in the NFL. Like you can play with guys that you don't like and have it not matter because there are twenty two people on the field, but. Um, yeah, and it's and it's so much more uh, like assignment defined. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, there's there's that's not right. a lot of like free flow in the NFL. You have your yep. assignment. So if the left guard hates the right guard, right? Oh well, you know if the left guard hates the defensive tackle, even less of an issue because you're almost on separate teams. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Pipe. Speaking of players hating players and, and controversial things from the NBA last week, um, what did you think of Steve Kerr letting his players basically coach the team at the end of a blowout game? I loved it. I thought it was fantastic for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, because I'm always up for gamesmanship. And so if there was a little bit of like, screw you guys, that's kind of fun. Um, But also because they had just had this whole big team meeting like a week or two prior about how they were, everybody was cranky. They were burned out. They'd been to the finals, what, three straight years now. They, you know, there's just, it's the part of the season that nobody likes. They're tired. And so anything to give those guys... A, a boost anything to give those guys like a little bit more buy-in some engagement when you're yeah. beating the suns by 40 points it's <laughs> real hard for you know andre Iguodala, a 10-year veteran to really care that much dude i totally agree and if the if the suns are bothered by that then make it a real game and, yeah and then it don't, won't be don't an lose by 40 is a real good rule <laughs> exactly exactly no i'm totally with you man and it's it's fascinating to be in these kind of like long season, large schedule sports, how monotony is a real thing. And like monotony, it really factors in in a way that it doesn't factor in in the NFL where you play once a week, you play 16 games. Every game, you know, quote unquote, means something unless you're the Browns. And, <laughs> um, you know, but whereas in basketball, like boredom is really a thing. I think I think good coaches mitigate against it in creative ways. And uh, I think this is one of those creative ways. Pipe, I have another random NBA question to throw at you. And this this is something that I just noticed a couple of nights ago. Um, what do you think of Miami's Miami Vice jerseys? Probably the best alternate uniform to be created in NBA history. Dude, I agree. I think they're absolutely sick. In the, mo- in the most alternate way. uniforms look like like fashion, like like fashion show cast-offs. It's right. like, oh, we're just going to throw some some glitter and some swirls, and here we go. Mm-hmm. But those, those are those are phenomenal for, for what Miami is. Dude, they are phenomenal. And you're right. They're absolutely phenomenal for what Miami is, which is a, a franchise with, like, a little bit of a history, but not enough to have a, a quote-unquote classic uniform that you don't want to mess with. You know, they're not the Celtics. They're not the Lakers. Um, they, they have just enough history to matter. Uh, but the, I think the Miami Vice jersey is a, is a brilliant move. Now, um, I want to get your thoughts on on best and worst uniforms in the NBA at this point. Like, who do you like looking at just visually? Hmm. 
man, the NBA is a crapshoot because in general, I hate what they do with their uniforms. You know, like when they yeah, brought out the sleeved, like soccer style jerseys a few years ago. Oh, dude, those are the worst. I just, I was, I mean, it, they, they, they look ridiculous. Yeah, They're, it's like a, it's like a too creative by half deal. It's yeah, like you know, just go back to whatever they were wearing ten years ago and just wear that. You know. Yeah, I'm trying. So I'm trying to think. Like, I there's not a lot because almost everybody has changed their uniform subtly or dramatically in the last you know though they do they do it every five years yeah um and so let's see like boston is a classic but i don't like green like green yeah. is an ugly color but at least it's a classic uniform i like the spurs generally speaking because mm-hmm. they like they do have enough of a history now that if they decided to dramatically change their main like that logo with the spur yeah. um dude and they have the classic silver and black color scheme it's a really great color scheme yeah and and so it's yeah it's it's classic it's it's simple but it's still it's a little bit bold. Um, who else? Even I mean the Lakers are the Lakers, but again, yeah, it's funny as as much as I am a a Vikings fan, purple and gold I think is a really ugly color combination. It is. Um, it's pretty hideous. And they stole the name from the Minneapolis Lakers, or they took it with <laughs> them, and it, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I, you know, you know who has a great uniform, although it's not old enough to be considered classic by any means. The, yeah. the Milwaukee Bucks rolled out a new, a new alternate this year. It's like that cream color with yeah. the with the purple and the green, like just yeah. accents. It's yeah. really, it looks really good because it looks Dude, like a classic uniform. It's really pleasing to look at, and they and they did a good thing, which is to keep the the integrity of the team's color scheme intact. Here, here's what I hate, man. This is a pet peeve. Like the Utah Jazz, I literally couldn't tell you what their actual color scheme is. Like I have no idea what their colors are because they they roll out these alternate uniforms in such a way that you know they're they're playing fast and loose with their color scheme. Atlanta Hawks, same thing. I mean, if the if if the orange and yellow and kind of white thing was good enough for Dominique Wilkins, I think it's good enough for whoever the Hawks have now. You know. Well, and then, and did you see that the Jazz rolled out a uniform that looked like that color combination? Dude, it did. It looked like a except, Hawks uniform from the eighties, except, except it was, it was tie dye or yeah. something. Oh, yeah, dude, it was horrible. It was like flower children, Hawks colors on the Utah Jazz. I think the Jazz have like perpetrated more uniform crimes against humanity than any other franchise in pro sports, probably. Do you, do you, do think, you agree with that? I, uh, well, more than any other team in history. I mean, there's some college basketball and football teams. That, that's true. Yeah, I that's mean, not counting college. I'm talking pro Okay, sports. so just in the pros? Um... Like consistently terrible yeah. uniforms. Well, because, yeah, they try more things and they never mm-hmm. had a good uniform to begin with. Like even back yeah. when it was like purple with the mountains on it, it was still, I mean, again, purple, ugly. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, Stockton and Malone never looked good in their uniforms. They just. No, the, that was a horrible uniform. I think the, like the Alex English era with the the blue with sort of the, the skyline in the back kind of got there with the mountains and the, and the buildings Wait, and all that stuff. Wasn't that the Nuggets? Wait, wait, wait. Not the Jazz, dude. Yeah, that was the Nuggets. Why am the, I thinking the, of the Nuggets? The Nuggets had the Nuggets had a classic, and then they went to that yeah. baby blue and gold, which actually was also a pretty clean look. Dude, it was okay. It was it was a it clean was, look. That was like Carmelo era Nuggets. Yeah, it, yeah. it worked. It worked. Yeah, dude, you really can't go wrong with blue and gold. In, any shade of blue and gold is going to be serviceable. See yeah. also Golden State, dude. Now I love the Mitch Richmond era Golden State uniform. Chris Mullen, Mitch yeah. Richmond. That that was super clean, man. I think. Although Anytime I, they want to go back to that. I'll when when they went to the one where it has like the circle logo with the cityscape on it, but it's it's yeah. sort of minimalistic, just that that silhouette kind of thing. I yeah. like that. 
I yeah. they've d- they've done some really bad alternates as well. Yeah. Um, but but I, I like that as a as sort of a staple element of a of a uniform. I agree. And and while we're on uniforms pipe, I want to bring us back around to trades. Um, would would you say that would you say that LeBron in Cleveland is 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 basically done? Um, so we're we're going to see him in a different uniform next year. Um, what do you what do you think on that? And then I'll ask you the next question. LeBron is he's going to go. He's either going to get somebody to Cleveland, mm-hmm. or he's going to go somewhere where there are at least two established superstars. Which is why the Lakers are probably not his destination because at best yeah. it's going to be him, him and maybe Paul George, and then young guys who maybe that's intriguing to him because they do have yeah. some decent talent on that roster. But right. um, but it's hard to see you know people throughout Houston, but like that. If Houston was going to do that, they would have Harden, Paul, LeBron, all of whom are ball dominant players. So it works right. with two. I'm not sure it works with three. Dude, that and, would be ridiculous. It would be like absolutely the, ridiculous. And the only way three superstars ever works is if one of them becomes a complimentary it takes player. Takes a subservient role in which yeah. of those guys is so you think, willing to do it. You think about Chris Bosch. So let's yeah. go back to Boston when they had Ray Allen and KG and Paul Pierce. Like right. KG was not a dominant offensive player at that point in his career. He was happy exactly. to put up eight shots a game and rebound and play the best defense in the NBA. Dude, so that worked because somebody had gotten old. You know, whereas this Houston scenario that we're that we're sussing right. out, I don't think it works because nobody's really over it well, yet. Well, it would know? work because Chris Paul will miss thirty five games next year. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah. And he might yeah. still this year. Who knows? Right. Uh, like with Miami, it was the same thing. Chris Bosh was just – he just became a perfect teammate, even yep. though he had yep. been like a 24 and, and 12 guy. Right. Uh, with Golden State, you have Draymond Green as a star, but he, again, he could go a whole game and shoot three times and be fine as long as they win. Clay Thompson – Klay Thompson doesn't need the ball. Like even that game when he put up, what yeah. was it, like 60 or 70 points? Right. He dribbled 11 times. Dude, right. He's he's a star, but he's not. They're not marquee guys. You know what I mean? Like right. Draymond Green doesn't. He doesn't. Go, he doesn't switch teams and have it be his team. You know right. what I mean? And honestly, Whereas, if, he, if he switched teams, there's only about three or four other teams in the NBA where he could have the same impact. Like he would have the same right. impact with Houston, uh, with with Cleveland, with these right. other teams that are superstar heavy. But yeah. not if he went to like, uh, like if he went to Chicago right now. Oh yeah, he would. He would just start punching teammates after a week. Exactly, exactly. He would. He would just be a guy, for sure. So, where do you, where would you like to see LeBron end up? And I'll, I'll say this: I would love to see him end up with with Pop in San Antonio. I think that would be a hmm. great, uh, fascinating coach. I mean, the smartest coach in the league, um, the most compelling player in the league over the last you know ten or fifteen years. I think it would be a really interesting pairing for LeBron to grow old with. Like I think, I think Pop ages LeBron's game in a in a really interesting way, and he would get the most out of like, you know, twilight years LeBron. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Pipe? I I love that fit. I LeBron has so dominated his coaches for the last few years. Like not when he Dude, was he's in never Mi- had a real coach. Like he's well, never well, had- when when he was so he was under Spolstra in Miami for the most part, and right. They seem to have a really good mutual respect, but yeah. like Spolstra, Spolstra was not the boss of him, right? Right. And then in Cleveland, like LeBron runs the show. The coaches yeah. do some things, yeah. Um, but he delivers championships to those coaches. Whereas like Pop runs the show 
in San Antonio. And the guys who are stars there mm-hmm. are guys who like they put aside their ego and they probably put aside 15 to 20 percent of their stats, too. That's like true. they're it's yeah. just that's kind of how it works. And so like. LeBron could do that as a player. Like he has a skill set that Pop could do all yeah. sorts of things with, and he can fit in with anybody. Yeah. But the question is, can he? Can he? Like, there is no ego. There is no brand in San Antonio. That's there true. hasn't there hasn't been a branded player in San Antonio since like the Admiral in 1996. <laughs> Dude, right? Know? Yeah. So, before they got really good. Yeah. Yeah. Pre Pop. So right. I mean, it, right. it's that's a tough fit. I, I hope he stays in Cleveland. Like yeah. I just, I, I think. I hope for his sake he stays in Cleveland because I think if he moves again, he becomes a heel figure again. Like, yeah, he's, like, and and I don't care about LeBron. I don't. I don't have any yeah. like uh, emotional ties to that player at all. But just for his legacy's sake, I guess I don't want to see him like put the the black hat on again. Well, yeah, it just I realize it's the era of free agency and all that, but it's a little. It would be. It would be too mercenary, a little mm-hmm. bit too championship chasing, mm-hmm. um, I think, for him to leave. But, you know, and I could see him go. It's just hard to say, like, where where's a better fit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Pipe, let's, uh, let, let's transition out of the NBA and into fixing the NFL's problems, of which there are many. So this was a, oh. this was a fascinating season in that, like, I feel like the season started with the the Colin Kaepernick narrative and why aren't teams signing cap and who's kneeling for the the national anthem and it ended with the catch rule with um, Chris Collinsworth speaking ad nauseum forever and ever about the catch <laughs> rule in the Super Bowl. Exactly, exactly, in a way that's just painful for everyone involved. Um, and in between there was like targeting and and helmet to helmet stuff, and it was just a tumultuous <coughs> year for the NFL. It seemed like it was all about. Um, secondary things. So that being said, what to you, what, what are ways to fix some of the, the dumbest rules that the NFL has? I think they need to stop trying to fix them. You know, like they, yeah. they have over legislated. Like if, if you work for a company that has a policy book that has like caveats on caveats and they've tried to create, like it's taken all the judgment out of an employee's hands and tried to legislate every way that any device can be used and every minute can be used. Like that's the worst rule book ever. Yeah. And that's the NFL rule book when it comes to like catches or targeting where if there's a lack of clarity, instead of saying, you know what, we have highly trained referees who miss some calls, but, but they, they have judgment. Yeah. Uh, They try to define it even more closely. And instead we get, a four hour delay every game trying to figure out, you know, did he have possession going to the ground? Did he make right. a football move after like, what the, what is a football move? Exactly. Everything on a football field is a football move, Ted. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, it, it really is. Like you put it on a football field, Piper, it becomes a football move. That's, that's absolutely right. And I feel like this is a dilemma that like kids in backyards have been figuring out for right. years. Why can't the NFL figure it out? Well, like, and, it, it, that I, I heard it on a podcast. I was ha- having a conversation with friends. I mean, all of us said the same thing. It's like th- when you play backyard football, when, when we played intramural flag football in college, like there are always arguments about whether or not something is a catch, but they get settled yeah. in less than a minute. Absolutely. And maybe somebody's not happy, but you snap the ball and go. And yeah. that's the way the NFL used to be, you yes, know? Absolutely. And, and, and so I think, I think what they need to do is – they they need to allow coaches to have challenges. Yeah. And they need to let the refs ref, but they don't need to replay every stinking thing 
about about the the catch rule specifically, but even mm-hmm. the targeting thing. I hate the targeting rule. Yeah, because- see, that's the one I would change, man. I, I feel like you're trying to take something that is manifestly violent and chaotic mm-hmm. and convince people through one rule that it's somehow sane and, and controlled. Yeah. It's not. I mean, this is a violent game. It's why people love it. You know, it's a risk. I'm not excited about CTE, obviously, but like these guys know what they're doing. They know what yeah. kind of risk they're taking when they step on the field. And, you know, football is football is football. And, you know, not that, you know, you don't want to see the late stuff. You don't want to see the blatant stuff. Right. But, man, that 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 hit that happened in the Super Bowl on Gronk, mm-hmm. you know, was it targeting? Probably. Mm-hmm. But I mean, was it just good, hard football and a safety doing his job? Absolutely. You know, and I don't want yeah, to see. The, or the, guys, one that t- the one that yeah. took Brandon Cooks out. Was, yeah, the one that took Brandon Cooks out. Was, uh, it was clean. It and, was. And yeah. it would, you know, and like, but that's, but there were people who were like, oh, should that be a penalty? No, it absolutely shouldn't be a penalty. There, there mm-hmm. are things that should be penalties. Like there, there used to be a penalty called spearing. Like yeah. I remember I being remember taught, I remember yep. being taught not to spear. So you don't. You don't, you keep your head up, so yep. you're not head down, so you're not you know breaking your own neck. Absolutely. But even like, and then and then you didn't hit the quarterback helmet to helmet. Right. Other right. than that, like anything it's goes. A, it's a collision sport, and the thing that the thing that again trying to over legislate doesn't take into account is the the speed and reaction of the game. So, right. Like if if a wide receiver catches the ball and starts to go down to the ground, he is putting his head in the hit zone. Yeah, that's right. Because that's right. that the defender is aiming at his sternum, and then all of a sudden he ducks. Well, where's his head now? Right in front of the other guy's head. So all of a sudden that's targeting. Like that's the opposite of targeting. Yeah, that's for sure. That's that's just football. And so yeah. that yeah, that rule is a mess too. It it. I also wish they wouldn't protect quarterbacks quite so much mm-hmm. um, on the ticky tack stuff. You know, like when a guy smacks a quarterback in the head with his right. hand, like right. Maybe maybe a five yard like hands to the face penalty or something like that, but not a that that's not roughing the quarterback. Exactly, it's not roughing anybody. Exactly, I guess not, that's not even roughing your kid if you do that to him. <laughs> exactly, man, that's so true. Well, the NFL is is maddening in many ways, pipe, but it also provides um, a lot of a lot of athletes that we have probably irrationally loved over the years. And uh, this next segment, this is something we'll loop around to uh, occasionally. I want us to talk about athletes from each major sport that we love irrationally. So these aren't maybe the best athletes. They're not the superstars, um, but just guys that, that we have loved um, with, with a love that is anything but rational over the years. And because we're on the NFL, let's start with that pipe. Who are your, uh, your guys in the NFL that you love irrationally? All right. So there, th- these are all guys really from my youth. There was a period when I fell in love with football between like, fifth and sixth grade up through high school. So these guys all kind of fall in that range for, for the guys, uh, because that, that, that's when I was at my complete and uttermost irrational as a football fan. So the first one is a guy named David Dixon. Oh, uh, sure. I remember David Dixon. David Absolutely. Dixon, David Dixon played right guard for the Vikings during their, the, the late nineties, early two thousands. He regularly pushed 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. Like it was a big deal when he came to camp at like three sixty five because Dude, I just remember looking at him like he looked different in his uniform. Like he just looked yeah. like a wall. You know, he was like, like a gigantic mass was, of a person. I think, I think he was Samoan, and yeah. so and so you know there, there's been a history of really successful Samoan linemen, offensive and defensive in the NFL. Just yeah. guys who are genetically 
monstrous. Like they're right. they're they're six two to six six and just broad. And that's mm-hmm. what he was. Like he he had a little squish to him, but he wasn't any like Gilbert Brown kind of fat. Right. Uh, so I loved him because he and the thing is I don't even think he was a great right guard to start. Right. He definitely wasn't to start, but he turned himself into a guy who he would line up next to Corey Stringer, um, the Vikings right tackle who tragically died in training camp mm-hmm. uh, in the early two thousands. But and they were that was like. 800 pounds of linemen on the right-hand side. So whether oh, or not yeah. they were good, they they just it was very hard to get around them. And so they would just sort of lean on the defense and create running lanes and block for whichever old quarterback the Vikings were cycling through at the time. Uh, he was a ton of fun to watch. Just Dude, who were massive. some of those old quarterbacks? Just lay a couple names on. All right, we there was those Randall Cunningham. There was oh, Gus yeah. Gus Ferrat. Dude, there Gus Ferrat. Yes. Uh, let's see who else. Brad Johnson for a while there. Uh-huh. Um, there was uh, Jeff George made some appearances. Absolutely. Um, Dude, he played for like a dozen teams yeah. in his career. I love Jeff, that. Jeff George was a guy who was still living on potential at 37. Dude, I love that. Yeah, the perception of Jeff George was always like he's got this rocket arm and, yeah. and he's finally going to live up to his first overall pick billing, but it, it just never happens. And, and he did have a rocket arm. Like he had this yeah. super quick release and just could fling the ball, but just was a difficult guy to be a teammate with and not the smartest quarterback in the world. Yeah. Let's see who else. I think Sage Rosenfels made some appearances at various points. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, but like the Dude, Sage Rosenfels. Yes. You know, and then these uh-huh. guys, these guys were sandwiched. So obviously Brett Favre, uh, yeah. then there was the Dante Culpepper was the only one at any point who was like a drafted quarterback who was developed into a good player. Um, and then, and then, uh, and actually an underrated player. He had, he had a couple just monster years with, with Randy Moss on the team. Oh, and yeah. then he, uh, he blew his knee out and was just kind of gone after that. Dude, before he blew his knee, he was a, he was an effective runner too. Yeah. I mean, he was a different kind of runner than like a Randall Cunningham, but, but he was very effective. Well, he, yeah, cause I mean, Cunningham was like a, a bit like a gazelle, you know, like long yeah. legs, find the open space. Like Culpepper would turn the corner and you know how running guys, you know, quarterbacks usually like scoot for the sidelines. He'd pause. Let the yeah. defender get close and then lower his shoulder on him because he was he was two hundred sixty pounds. Yeah, he was, it was a huge. monster. Absolutely, absolutely. Pipe, my first uh, my first irrationally loved NFL player is a lineman as well, and this guy was a an absolute bust at the pro level. But I was fascinated by him, and it's Tony Mandrich. Do you remember Tony Mandrich? I do. I mostly yeah. by reputation. He was a little bit before my my era of fandom, but I know him by reputation. Dude, so when I was in that like tender young age of like just starting to lift weights, so like eighth or ninth grade, mm-hmm. Sports Illustrated dropped the cover with Tony Mandarich and he was shirtless and it said the incredible bulk and he just looked huge. He had like the long rock star hair and like a backward ball cap and um he was wearing like a pair of football pants. And I, I ripped that thing off and I hung it on my wall. And Mandarich was like the most dominant left tackle in college football history. I mean, he just destroyed people. Um, and then it, I think he got clean. So I think he stopped using steroids and went went to the league and was kind of a bust. <laughs> but people forget, and, and this is the part that I like, he resurrected his career at the end with the Indianapolis Colts at a time when I was living in Indianapolis. And um, he actually had like, three or four good years as a starting lineman with the Colts. He played some tackle. He played some guard. He was never like the dominant figure that people thought he would be coming out of Michigan State. But he, but he, but he, had but he made a career out of it. Dude, he made a career yeah. out of it. Like he, he got his life together. He got clean. And um, I, I admire him for that. But people – I hate these like 
top 10 busts of all time. And they, yeah. they put him on the list as though he never you, had a career. You here, Here's a book idea for you. Yeah. Uh, the title is he made a career out of it. And it's, it is yeah, I love that. highly rated guys who were not what they were supposed to be, but they made a career out of it. Like yeah. they, like you, you know, guys who were highly rated uh, starting pitchers who blew out their arm, but became like effective middle relievers for eight years or something right. like that. You right. know, just that, that kind of thing who become sort of journeyman guys because I, and you see it a lot with, with linemen, offensive linemen, especially, you know, drafted best left tackle. He's the next, you know, whoever, yes. Anthony Munoz. Yeah. And, uh, and he's playing, he's playing left guard or right guard after four years, but yeah, it, you know, seven, eight years of the NFL. Like that's, that's a See, really exactly. good career. That's a legit career. There were a couple other things I liked about Mandarich. One was, uh, he had really cool tattoos in an era <laughs> kind of before everybody had cool tattoos. Yeah. And especially before white dudes had them, you know, there, there weren't a lot of white dudes that had tattoos at all, much less cool ones. And, and Mandarich did like, he had more than just a sort of frat guy piece of barbed wire around the bicep, you know? Yeah. Uh, so there was that. He also wore a neck roll really well. I was a huge neck roll guy back in the day. So, um, it just made you look like even more of a monster than you actually were when you, when you wore one of yeah. those. So do you like remember the, the, who was it? Was it Brian Cox? Dude, Brian Cox, Who, yeah, great it wasn't even neck a neck roll. Guy. It was like it was like a neck. It was Board. like a yeah. yeah. It, it was it was it was like he was, like was on a stretcher standing up. Dude, something. it was. It was like he had a little piece of a stretcher sticking out of the top of his shoulder. Dude, I loved Brian Cox too. A, a total, I think a total kind of d bag on the field, but like yeah. I really liked him. Well, and he's, he was, he's the kind of player who only worked in that era because he was he was a middle linebacker who wasn't very fast. Dude, yeah, he was huge. He was like 6'3", 6'4", 260. Probably couldn't run under five flat for the 40. Especially but he was the end mean of and he hit. Dude, mean and nasty and he hit. And every defense that he was on was tougher because he was on it. Right. You know? And he would always be counted on to do like one crazy thing each season, like <laughs> yes. flipping off like an entire yeah. fan base. He's gonna headbutt or, a coach or something. Dude, he's gonna headbutt a coach. Yeah, Brian Cox was classic, man. That's a that's a great one, um, dude. Let's do one more football player. Uh, I've I've got one for you. I think I'd mentioned him on the program before. This is another great neck roll and tattoo guy from the '90s, Andy Katzenmoyer. Yes. Uh, oh, this is perfect because I had my mine was gonna be. All of the Ohio State players from that era. Dude, yes, they were great. They were great. So Katzenmoyer had, like, the mirrored visor, and he had a really cool face mask. There was one face mask in that era that was cooler than all the other face masks, Mm -hmm. and he had it. He had the great visor. He had the huge neck roll. Um, He was a really jacked dude. Again, one of these, like, downhill, between-the-tackles kind of linebackers from the 90s. Um, Good tattoos. Katzenmoyer was a total package. Like, when I was playing in the 90s, that's who I wanted to look like. When he, yeah, because he he was an absolute stud on an Ohio State team that was stacked with NFL talent, and oh, uh, but it was Big Ten football, which means like it was three yards in a cloud of dust. The only yeah. team that ran the spread was Purdue, and they were everybody thought they were weird. Um, and Drew Brees, you know, Drew Brees made it right, made a he, go of it. Yeah, he he did all right. He's been he did okay. Yeah, he made yeah. he made a career of it. That's right. Um, that's right. And and so he, but but like because it was that kind of football, having a two hundred and fifty pound middle linebacker with some speed was he he looked like an absolute star. Like he just yeah. he was in every play. He was a he was dude. A beast. He would go downhill and just destroy people. Yeah. Like so his highlight package from that era was just freakishly interesting to watch. Yeah, but I mean uh, that that team. I don't know if it was that team or there's just an ear there because it was. There was him. There was Eddie George. There was Terry Glenn. There was Joey oh, yeah. Galloway. There was Sean Springs. 
There yeah. was um, Robert Smith. Well, yeah, Robertson was a little bit before that. He he might yeah. have been at the same time as Galloway because I think Galloway. Was yeah, a that's bit true. Earlier. I think he and Galloway were contemporaries. Um, but yeah, just just loaded with. with Dude, you know talent. what they never had there though were quarterbacks. I feel like Bobby Hoying was their best quarterback from that era. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was. Kurt well, Herbstreit. They, they were sort of Alabama pre-Alabama, where like Dude, everybody were, yeah. on that team was an NFL player except the quarterback who was maybe an NFL backup. Dude, they had some ridiculous linemen too. Orlando Pace obviously came yep. out of there. He was a, a great offensive line problem. Yeah, they had they had some they had some vicious interior linemen too. I feel like they had a yeah. couple really good centers that came out of there whose names I can't are escaping Dude, me. Dude, they now. had a couple guys who were astonishingly good college players, D line wise, who never yeah. quite made it in the pros. Remember Alonzo Spellman played yes. for the Bears? Yeah, he had the weirdest looking huge arms I've ever seen. He looked like a <laughs> You look like a cartoon character. Okay. And, uh, speaking of speaking of huge arms, that's the next yeah. one for me. Was Greg Lloyd for the oh, Steelers? Greg Lloyd, dude, was a beast. Yeah, I, I think he was a. Uh, he might have been the guy who tipped the NFL into going. You know, guys, do we, should we should we test for steroids? <laughs> exactly. You think we should? Exactly. I mean, because because his arms were bigger than my waist is currently. Yeah, know? Greg Lloyd wasn't big. He was only like two twenty, but like. 180 of that was biceps. Was biceps, yeah. Absolutely. And he, and he rushed the passer opposite Kevin Green, who looked like a Viking caveman. And oh, so yeah. they, they were that was that was the Steelers defense. Dude, every uh, linebacker on that Steelers defense, I'm gonna name them all because I loved them all. Greg Lloyd, Chad Brown, yep. Kevin Green and Levon Kirkland. Yes. They all looked super cool. And they all looked way different and distinct from each other. And they all uh, looked insane. They, yeah. they all looked scary as all get out. And they were insane. Like it was a it was a vicious linebacking court. Like you weren't running inside when Levon Kirkland was there. Yeah, they, that, uh, that was they were the classic three four defense where they put three fat guys on the line and they're like, you guys just don't don't let the offensive linemen move. Yeah, you just exactly. lean on them, be fat, yep. And then these guys are going to come off the edges and you know just Destroy be hellacious you. rushers and yeah. fly around and just take people's heads off. Dude, another awesome Greg Lloyd thing. I don't know if you remember this, but he wore. So in the early to mid nineties, there was a there was a small trend toward like plastic face masks. Yes, and they were kind of big. They were kind of thick, molded. They looked yep. ugly. Um, but Greg Lloyd wore it and made it look cool. That's how I know that Greg Lloyd was cool. He could make that crappy face mask look good. No one else did that. Yeah, I mean, they, anyone who who wore that face mask made it look good. Except well, yeah, it was it was like a big like waffle iron looking thing that was yeah. super thick. Dude, I remember my high school got those our senior year, and I refused to wear it. Like everybody wore one except me. I found some old like bike you know, air helmet in the, in the equipment room that probably like gave me CTE, but I wore it just cause I had a cool face mask. Yeah. Um, dude, are we done with football? I, I feel like I could go on football. Oh yeah. Let's well, let, I mean, we could, but let's save some more for future episodes. We'll save some for future apps. This is like an evergreen topic. This will always be with us. So let's go, uh, let's go NBA irrationally loved NBA player. All right. So mine is, is a, uh, I love irrational confidence guys in the NBA. Mm. So guys who just, mm-hmm. they have zero conscience when it comes yes. to what they do with the basketball in their hands. Uh, <laughs> and and so I, w- I went to Wheaton College in 2001, um, uh-huh. right? And the Bulls were, were at a, a really low point. They, yep. you know, it was post-Michael Jordan yep. and they were just terrible. They yep. were it's sort of the Eddie Curry, Tyson Chandler, are they oh. rebuilding? A lot of 10 win, 11, 18 win seasons. They Those draft, were hard years. They drafted Kirk Heinrich and Ben Gordon. Uh-huh. And Ben Gordon was so fun to watch because he was the <laughs> only guy on that team who could shoot. 
uh-huh. and shoot he did. He was like a 6'2 shooting guard, and everybody was like, is he a point guard? Is he a shooting guard? Because they hadn't figured out that, like, if you can score, you can score. Just give him the ball. Yeah, yeah. And he would just huck. And he had some games where he would go off for, like, 25-point quarters – and his jumper was a thing of beauty because he would elevate to like three and a half feet off the ground before he released yeah. it. And he was he was so fun to watch. And I, I mean, I don't know if he was actually a good NBA player. I'm sure all the advanced statistics say no, but he was so fun to watch. Interesting, man. It's funny. Mine are Chicago Bulls, too. And mine is any white Bulls center from like the <laughs> 1980s. So they had they had Bill Winnington. Yep. And Dave Corzine, and they were like the same guy in that they were they were these dad bod white centers. This was before like weight training and nutrition became a thing in the NBA. So yes. you had these like totally smooth looking guys who looked like any guy from your office if he took his shirt off. The, their know, entire skill set consisted of being seven feet tall. Being seven feet tall and shooting a baby hook. Which my entire skill set now as a basketball player is consists of being six two. And shooting a baby hook, so like I've really, I've really taken the Winnington Corzine aesthetic to heart. But, but yeah, these guys had beards too before, like not hipster beards though, and not like awesome Bill Waltony beards, just like dad beards. And um, it, it was amazing. I would watch these guys and go, "How is it? What what kind of world do we live in that they're on the same floor as Michael Jordan and and you know these." high-flying guys it was just astonishing to well, like and that childhood me that's part of what made those guys stand out because like luke longley was in the same line a few you know he's followed yeah. winnington yeah. um it was was that they 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 were on the same court as michael jordan and scotty pippen who were two of probably World the top class. the two of the top 10 athletes in the nba during their entire careers and maybe in the world maybe yeah know. maybe in the world maybe ever yeah and uh yeah. and so and then and then consistently they roll out a center who's like seven to 270 pounds of like love handles. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and like, and like flabby triceps swinging around. That was back when you could get a job in the NBA just by being tall. Like yes. you didn't really have to bring anything else to the table, which is why the NBA is great now because you have these seven, two guys who can like shoot from the perimeter and handle the basketball. And it's fascinating. But, but back then, man, if you were seven, if you're seven, two, you were huge, um, all you did was stand around. It was it was a fascinating thing. Um, Pipe, do you have a, a modern NBA player that you irrationally love? You know, it's it's my take on the NBA has changed so much because I I root for the Timberwolves and everybody yeah. else. I just I enjoy watching just good basketball. So yeah. um, it's still some of the irrational confidence guys though. Like when when somebody like Lou Williams. Mm-hmm. For the Clippers, I mean, he's played for 42 teams. Or Jamal yeah. Crawford, who's actually on the Wolves now. Like, they start to go off. Yeah. It's just fun to watch a guy who's just like, he's going to come down and and he's going to cross a guy over four times and then just pull up for a shot that under any other circumstances is a terrible shot. It's like a 20-foot a fadeaway. Yeah. But he's on fire. And Dude, he I, just, feel like the, I feel like the Clippers always have cool guys. Like, they always have guys who are likable. Even though the team is never really any good, like... <laughs> They they always have because one of my guys is Corey Maggette, and it's yeah. like I don't know why I liked Corey Maggette. I had a Corey Maggette jersey. I just thought he looked cool. I thought that Clippers team it, that was in the like the Clippers have yeah. so much upside years. And everybody was like waiting for them <laughs> yeah, to break him and, and Darius Miles and dude, whoever Darius else. Miles, yeah, yeah Corey Maggette, uh, Sean Livingston, Lamar was, Odom made a pass through dude, there at one point. Lamar Odom absolutely made a pass through there at one point. And those are all those are all, those are all like the same player. They're like they are. Yeah. multi-skilled for I mean Odom was the best of the bunch, but multi-skilled forwards who 
can't do any one thing really, really well. Exactly. exactly. I, I have a type that I love because it totally doesn't fit in the NBA now. Uh-huh. And it's like the – you remember Bonzi Wells? Totally. Bonzi Wells went to Ball State, man, which is like 30 minutes from where I grew up. Yeah. So totally bon- Bonzi Wells is a shooting guard in name only because he was right. six foot five. But yeah. he, he had no jumper yep. and he would just rebound and mug people. Uh-huh. And, and you know, he'd score 14, 15 points a game on, like, putbacks and drives that were more like just uh, stiff-arming people out of the way. Players yeah. like that. Like, Corey McGetty was a little bit like that because he couldn't yep. shoot and yeah. was just a big – he was more athletic. But, yeah. like, the, the Timberwolves had this guy named Shabazz Muhammad who has, mm-hmm. has totally benched – I mean, he's, he's like the 15th man on the roster now because – because that's what he is. He's yeah. he's a power forward functionally. He's like a 1980s power forward yeah. who is who is six six. Absolutely, that Dude, any 1980s so power fun. forward I really liked, um, like the Charles Oakley, yes. uh, Xavier McDaniel types. Like yeah. those, those guys were super fun to watch. I love the the Davis the Davises who played on uh, Indiana. Dale so Davis and Antonio I always Davis. called them the Absolutely. Davis brothers because that was always the joke I made. But they're not related. But yeah. yeah, there's guys who were like. Like, what are they good at? Like, they're moderately athletic, they're tall, they're really strong, and they basically just, they just mug people. They're the brute squad. Absolutely they were, man. Absolutely they were. Pipe, we are we are running out of time, unfortunately. I could go on this all day, but I have to go and pick my kid up from school. I feel like that's kind of important. But it does seem he, like it. He wouldn't really understand me sitting around talking about, like, <laughs> 80s power forwards. Bonzi Wells. Well. Yeah, Bonzi <laughs> Wells. Bonzi Wells, who always looked cool, too. Always had a headband. He, Dude, he looked cool, and he had a cool name. That's kind of like the, the, the those are the twin towers of, of coolness. Like if your if your name rolls off the tongue, and you look a certain way, Bonzi Wells looked like he always should have been wearing a beanie. You know what I mean? Yeah, like pulled down low over his eyes. Well, he he was in the NBA at a at a, a very kind of unfortunate time because it was like the Jailblazers era. So it was yeah. like when the NBA was it was post Jordan. So like they lost. They lost some of their clean cut stars, right? And uh, and it was like it's what all the white people called the thug era. Like everybody said, the gangster and thug, and it was and the then, Stephon Marbury era, who's another and, one that yeah, I loved irrationally. It was like it was like when when hip hop and basketball had sort of merged culture wise, yeah. and so it it was a time when when the league was not very well respected, and right. he uh, seemed to buy into that wholeheartedly. He. He brought he brought some brutishness to the court for sure. Absolutely, he did. Pipe, we only have a couple minutes remaining, but with that couple minutes, uh, I'd like to get a book recommendation from you. This is a, a recurring segment each show. Uh, what's a sports book that you think our audience would love? All right, let's see. Uh, well, since we're talking about that era of basketball, that sort of not, we talked a lot about eighties, nineties basketball. There's a book called Boys Among Men by uh, I think his name is Jonathan Abrams. He, he's mm-hmm. written for The Ringer, and he's a really good writer. And it, it's about the preps to pros generation of basketball. So really oh, – Yeah, I still got to read that one, man. I still it's not so good. It's it's a little bit oral history. Sure. But, but not – I mean it's not a true oral history where he's jumping around between different people. So it, it looks heavily at guys like – Kevin Garnett, and then goes back and looks at Moses Malone, and then it just it just tells the story and the guys who washed out completely, as well as like Kobe and LeBron and these stars, but just how that how that completely shifted the game of basketball, stylistically, drafting wise, financially, and it's yeah. a so if if you were a basketball fan during the mid nineties up to today, it's yeah. absolutely for you because it's it it sort of frames why the NBA is what it is. 
dude, Kwame Brown, one yep. of the early ones. Yeah. Yeah, they talk a lot about the, names, the, the, Kwame, too, the Kwame Jordan tension yeah. there with the Wizards. Corleone Young. Yeah. He, he was one that kind of washed out, but a classic name. I mean, just unbelievably cool name. Mm-hmm. Um, my book recommendation, Pipe, is a, is a novel, actually. I don't think we've done any fiction yet. Um, it's a novel called Semi-Tough. The hmm. author is Dan Jenkins. Dan Jenkins was a legendary Sports Illustrated guy in the 70s, like kind of in the like cigarettes and scotch grizzled sports writer era. And uh, he wrote these novels um, about pro football, and they were funny. They were really witty, really like bitingly satirical. Uh, they're a little bit filthy, so these aren't you know sports novels to go and pick up for your eighth grader. But um, really interesting stuff and some kind of like prophetic stuff about – um, the NFL and NFL life. And, and uh, his main characters, one of them is a, a player who becomes a writer. So I think uh, for <laughs> me, that was always kind of a, a cool, uh, a cool kind of main character to look at. So uh, the book is semi-tough. The author is Dan Jenkins, a uh, really talented novelist. Um, Pipe, we have done what we, what we always do in this program. We've wandered to and fro. Um, I did not pick a name coming in. I didn't do my homework as the host of the program. Um, but I have one. I have one. I'm going to try it out. And this was – we didn't even get to baseball, did we, for our uh, our irrational loves? Nope. We've got things lined up for future episodes then. We got things lined up for future ep- episodes. But uh, this is a baseball player that I love. So we have wandered to and fro. And until next time, Andy Van Slyke. The Happy Rant is brought to you by Resonate Recordings. If you go to ResonateRecordings.com, you can see the full range of services they offer. So if you're considering starting a podcast, they are the ones we recommend going with. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see their prices, to connect with them and ask any questions, and to see what they can do to help you launch, edit, master, and improve your podcast. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see what they can do to help you launch and improve your podcast. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hard-working pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.